You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast with me, Olivia Nelson. In the latest episode of Aspie's special series, SBY's Tears, from Managing Crisis to Managing Process in Australia-Indonesia Relations since the fall of Suharto, David Angle and Hilary Mansour speak to Rick Smith, who was ambassador to Indonesia from 2001. This conversation explores economic reform after the Asian financial crisis, the end of Gustu's presidency and the beginning of Megawati's presidency, and the state of Australia's relationship with Indonesia during Smith's tenure. They also discuss the Tampa affair and the 2002 Bali bombing terror attack and how Australia should engage with its northern neighbour. Rick, welcome to Aspie and thanks for joining us on this podcast series. Thanks, David. Now, you arrived in Jakarta in January 2001, and by then you were no stranger to Southeast Asia. You served in Manila, and you'd spent many years working on the region in Canberra. But Indonesia would have offered interesting comparisons with China, where you just served as Australia's ambassador. What were the main differences that you saw? Well, firstly, of course... Indonesia was, to use the word, a very vibrant democracy, a relatively new one, and political speak was alive and well. Uh, Everybody was a critic of everybody else, and there was plotting and planning and conspiring going on, very open political scene and refreshingly democratic but unrefreshingly confusing. And the second great difference that struck me was the point that I always respected in China was their capacity to get things done. If they decided on an objective, they achieved it. In Indonesia, the capacity to get things done was not strong. It was then a largely ineffectual administration, except for anything that TNI was handling. The official ministerial announcement for your appointment stressed that Australia's diplomatic efforts in Indonesia would focus on helping it recover from the East Asian financial crisis through economic reform. What were your thoughts about Indonesia's economic reform prospects at the time and on Australia's future engagement with it? I went there in the expectation that, yes, there would be a big focus on economic reform. We were prepared for that. The embassy was well-staffed to contribute. But I'd have to say that not a great deal was achieved. There were some very good people involved, including Budiona, finance minister. I'd been at university with him and I knew him a bit. And those people were committed to economic reform. But as time went on, it became evident they're very difficult. Of course, the politics made it difficult, but I I quickly came to understand even better than I had how difficult it is to administer anything across an island, a chain of 17,508 separate islands and so many different cultures. And that applied as much to economic change as it did to political uh, activity. And of course, the point here was that we were talking macroeconomic reform, which required very strong leadership at the centre, but also micro reform, which required considerable inputs from the provinces, which were very difficult to achieve. Well, this is a good segue to Indonesian politics at the time. And last episode, John McCarthy gave us some sense of that during the presidency of BJ Habibi and what he witnessed of Abdurrahman Wahid's tenure in office. You were in Jakarta for what proved to be Gustur's last six months in office. He was impeached and he was removed from power in July 2001. 
Can you talk a little bit more then about what you've made of Indonesia's democratic transition during those times? As I said, it, it was vibrant democracy. It was evident that there was plotting going on all the time. I had had some sense from Canberra of the machinations that Gustor had worked to achieve the presidency, and it was quickly evident that those machinations were in reverse as it was were by the time I got there. So those six months, all that was unfolding. I'd say two things about it. One is I think uh, Abdurrahman Wahid Gustor was good for Australia. He was, of course, a very strong Islamist, but he was able to articulate uh, Islam in a way that was understandable to people like us and not threatening in any sense. And he had a generous mind, a generous view of the world, and a largely positive view of Australia. And, of course, he broke through what was 27 years or more without a presidential visit and came to Australia at some political risk to himself in the times. But it worked well, and he was a gracious guest and well-received here, and uh, it had a good effect in Indonesia on the whole. So Gustur was a positive for us. The second point, though, was understood through all of this, it was a chaotic administration, but the time came in July 2001 when he'd been impeached and there was going to be a vote in the DPR, and Gustur was claiming all this was illegal, and they convened a session of the DPR, and uh, ambassadors were invited now, we knew what was going to happen. Megawatt, he was going to get the numbers and claim the presidency. If we were to go to the session, we were clearly endorsing this change. If we were to stay away as ambassadors, then we were saying, this is not the way it should be. And Gustur's people were lobbying us to stay away from the DPR session. But quick phone calls around the embassies, ambassadors, we all decided to go. This was going to happen. We might as well endorse it, as it were, and look to our interests with the incoming Megawati administration. We did that. It was quite a big decision on the day. It doesn't seem so big now, I suppose, but it was. And Gustur, who'd been good and a good friend of us personally as well as uh, a statecraft since, he and his people were very disappointed with us because they felt they'd gone out on a limb for Australia, that they were people who'd been unlawfully dispossessed of office and so on. So it was a tense period in that sense, but we did what we had to do. So, as you noted, it was a very complex scenario. Megawati replaced Gustor, but of course, even though it was a tricky scenario for Australia to navigate, this was a constitutional process and it followed their constitution at the time. That's right, Hilary. We made the assessment that not only was this going to happen, so for pragmatic reasons we'd go with it, but we also uh, had advice that this was constitutionally sound, that Megawati and her people were not simply operating outside the law, that this was legitimate politics within the bounds of the constitution. So we were comfortable doing what we were doing, but it was tough given and that we'd been close to Gustur and his people and that they'd done the right things by Australia. And part of doing those right things by Australia was Gustur's efforts to, as you mentioned, to visit Australia. I'm wondering, just given the context that... During this time, Australia's ties with Indonesia were still strained from the East Timor crisis and Gustoy himself had expressed some anger toward Australia over what had happened and made a point of visiting some other countries around the world ahead of Australia, but he became the first Indonesian president to visit the Australian capital. And I'd love to hear more about your thoughts of how significant this event was. Yes, I went to Indonesia at the beginning of 
2001, expecting that the East Timor memory would be alive and problematic. And I found that that wasn't so much the case. I didn't get much blowback on East Timor in that time. Yes, there were pockets of it. Habibi's people were still there to raise it and a few others in academia especially. But in political circles, I think there are two things to say. One is that there was quite a body of opinion that said we had our chance in East Timor. Indonesia, we had our chance and we blew it. And that view was put by a number of people and reassuring to us in a sense because we did make a big investment in supporting Indonesia in East Timor over 20-odd years and they didn't quite get it right. The second thing to say, though, is, as we've said earlier, there was such a preoccupation with their own politics there was little interest in replaying all of that. And finally, I suppose to say, the last formal meeting I went to in Indonesia, or would have been but for Bali, was the trilateral between Australia and Indonesian and East Timor foreign ministers up in Yogyakarta. That was in, what, early October of 2002. And so the three foreign ministers were sitting together, hammering out a future. And along the way, I discovered that people like Horta and Shanana Gusmau had a fantastic range of contacts in Jakarta anyway. There was such a lot of play going on around all of that at the time. You mentioned already that Megawati had by then assumed the presidency. And notwithstanding your point about the attitudes in Jakarta about East Timor, it's fair to say, I think, that Megawati herself still harboured some unhappiness about the loss of East Timor and from time to time seemed to exhibit that with regard to her relationship with the then Howard government. I was just wondering, what was your assessment of her presidency and the state of the relationship that we had at that point? I didn't find much animosity out of her or her people in relation to East Timor. We'd expected it. You know, she represented the nationalist stream, so to speak, uh, very strongly. And she had a personal connection uh, with Bali, as she did with uh, Irian Jaya. And so she was conscious of those issues. But it didn't manifest itself very obviously to me. The most significant thing, I think, about Megawati's presidency was that she was simply not a hands-on president. Uh, somebody uh, famously said she really wanted to be the Queen, not the President. And I remember a very senior Australian politician visiting and he sat down and said, well, these are the points I want to raise with Megawati. And they were all questions of detail about management of the state of Indonesia and of the relationship. And I said, she won't be armed to discuss this. That's that's just a level of detail that this president doesn't go to. She won't know what necessarily what you're talking about. And that was the nature of her presidency. She also, of course, had connections in Australia. Not least of them was her then-husband, Taufik Kemis, visited Perth every six months for a treatment for his heart. And, you know, there was always this transaction going on where we sorted out the visa and made arrangements for his arrival in Perth. And, you know, there was this personal thing went on, as it does for so many Indonesians. A critical moment, I would suggest, in Australia's relations with Indonesia happened just a month after Megawati's tenure began, and this was the Tampa Affair. 
So this wasn't the first instance of people smuggling from Indonesia to Australia, but it quickly became the most notable up to that time. What were your thoughts as this crisis unfolded and what impact did these kinds of people smuggling ventures have on the bilateral relationship? It was a very big issue, people smuggling, and it really was a theme throughout my 20 months in Indonesia managing this. And there are two points to make about it. One was that at the highest levels, the Indonesian government thought this was all about Australian politics, that there was no substantive national interest in it, that it was just posturing by parties in Australia, in particular in the lead up to the 2001 national election. And I'll give you an illustration of that. For some five or six weeks before the election, which was, I think, November, I had been unable to make contact with the people I usually dealt with, either SBY himself or in his office. They just were not available. The phones didn't answer. Their staff said they'll call back and they didn't and so on. Then immediately after the election, the Sunday evening after the election, I got a call from SBY's office saying, oh, Ambassador, we haven't seen you for a while. Have you been away? No, I've been here. You, I'm the guy who left all those messages, remember? They said, well... The minister is holding a meeting tomorrow, Monday, in Bali, of all the police chiefs in eastern Indonesia, and they're going to be talking about people smuggling. Would you like to come down and participate in that meeting? I said, tell me the time and place, I'll be there. But you see, the election was over. The Howard government had been returned, so they were now had to deal. The second point I'd make about it is that I do think uh, Indonesians and Indonesian government and its elite was very slow to understand that people smuggling was bad for Indonesia. It wasn't just bad for Australia. Their sovereignty was being abused. It was causing concern in places like Punchak. There was a riot up in Pontianak as large numbers of boat people landed there and were using up resources and space and generating some crime. There was concern at that level. And thirdly, it opened up a whole new seam of corruption across Indonesia from their immigration officials to even higher, to very high levels in government and through the police. So there were three levels of problem for Indonesia itself. And we spent a lot of time trying to say this is a problem not just for Australia but for Indonesia as well. I'm not sure that that ever really got through. I went back to Indonesia some years later after I'd retired from government and participated in a seminar and all of that. And I found then that some people had come around to that view, Luhut Panjaitan among them, but others still didn't see it quite that way. They always put in, yes, well, it might be a problem for Indonesia, but look, this is a big country with a lot of problems and this one doesn't rate as highly as it might for you. Well, one of those big problems that subsequently afflicted Indonesia in a major way and which was to culminate in what I assume was the most critical moment during your time there was terrorism. Now, bombers had already attacked and almost killed the Filipino ambassador in late 2000. They'd hit churches across the archipelago on Christmas Eve 2000, just before you arrived. Then, on 12 October 2002, just two days before you were to leave Jakarta, you learned of a major explosion in Bali, which turned out to be the worst terrorist attack ever committed in Indonesia and against Australians. Now, what went through your mind at that point, just as you were about to leave the country, about what was happening there and what it meant for Australia? 
A lot of things went through my mind, David. The first one obviously was I'm not leaving until we sort <laughs> this out and so I'd, I stayed on for a few weeks and went to Bali. The second thought uh, going through my mind was what have we missed here? We were certainly concerned about pressure being put on Australians in a consular sense by the FPI, the Front Pembeli Indonesia, were Islam, and we'd been following that very carefully, and we didn't know what else was beneath the surface because whenever these incidents that David's referred to occurred, you never got a clear answer as to who it was, and the best intelligence sources would tell you different stories. So where were Australians most vulnerable? We judged it was probably in East Kalimantan, where there are a lot of Australians working, and Jogjakarta, where there are a lot of students. So apart from the business communities in Jakarta and elsewhere, those were the areas we were most concerned of. We had not anticipated anything like this in Bali. Whether we should have is another matter. We now understand better how terrorists work, and they will go to the places that, you know, you least expect. But that was the second thought that was in my mind. And the third thought was, how do we get the Indonesian government to focus on this problem? There's clearly something that's come to the surface now, a powerful, well-organized, effective terrorist organization. What are they going to do about it? So immediately after the Bali bombing, I didn't go to Bali that day, the Sunday. I stayed in Jakarta and remained on the phones Firstly, I had to arrange overflights for Australian, for the RWF flights into Bali, and that came about because they were going to happen anyway. And secondly, there was an Indonesian cabinet meeting eventually called, and I wanted to have some input into that and to say, this is serious. This is an organisation that needs to be addressed. Our police will be ready to work with you. Our intelligence agents will be ready to work with you. Let's get onto the job together. There was a ready response to that from SBY and from some others in the administration, Henry Briono in particular. At other levels in the government, there was less of a response. But uh, that was the three immediate thoughts. And with the attack still fresh in your mind, what Mm. were your thoughts about Indonesia's future and of the bilateral relationship when you finally left Jakarta a month or so later? And how different are those perceptions from your thoughts on Indonesia now? Uh, I left Indonesia three weeks or whatever it was later thinking a couple of things. First, Bali is now a part of our story in Indonesia. 88 Australians and three permanent residents from Australia died there. Many others were scarred for life. Many families were affected by it. Bali was now part of the story of Australia and Indonesia. And the second thought I had was that even at that stage, the level of cooperation between the federal police in particular and the Polri was developing extraordinarily. And I saw that as likely to be a good thing, not only in resolving the issues still relating to Bali, but in the future management of the terrorist problem in Indonesia. And I guess thirdly, overall, I just had the view, well, This is Indonesia. This is a massive country, lots of different shades of behaviour. This will happen from time to time. And Australia, you know, living in a more protected environment, we're exposed here. Get used to it. As to the future, well, I usually canvass my views of Indonesia in terms of hopes. I would hope 
personally that they remain a secular democracy. I would hope that they can strengthen their public administration. Only thus will TNI be able to step back. I'm not critical of TNI for its engagement in Indonesian administration because it is the only institution in the country with a national reach. But I would hope that public administration could grow. I hope that as part of that, they can address the problems of endemic corruption, which do affect business opportunities for Australians and others. And finally, in all of that, I hope that they continue or that the Indonesian understanding of what Australia has to offer continues to grow. I always add one last point. In regard to Irian Jaya, what do I hope for? I hope for wise government by Indonesia. These are pretty aspirational hopes, but we've got to sustain them because this country matters. On that theme, and looking back on all your time in, in Indonesia as ambassador and what it taught you about the country, how should Australia be dealing with its northern neighbour now? What should we be doing with it to bring those things that you're talking about about? What should our priorities be? We should engage with them at every level that we can, whether it's just a straight-out foreign policy and their dealings with ASEAN and so on, or whether it's just in contributing to public administration, information sharing and so on. We should engage at every level, and the embassy is now more than big enough to do all of that. We can. We have Treasury people. We have every department of government there, and that's what we can and should do. I think, secondly, we should understand uh, Indonesia's importance in the region and support that. Indonesia at its best was a leader in ASEAN, ASEAN matters, and we should give some priority to their role there, which I, I think we do and we should continue to do. The last thing I would hope for in Australia dealing with Indonesia is you know, that we sustain Indonesian studies, language studies, as well as cultural studies. I think in past years, uh, ANU in particular, Melbourne as well, have been recognised internationally for their expertise on Indonesia. I think that may have fallen away a little, that may be just my ageing, but we've got to regrow that if it has fallen away. We shouldn't underestimate in all that the personal connections, as I said, uh, what is then husband was coming to Australia regularly for medical treatment. Bodiono was at university uh, when I was there. Yudiono's son was studying at Curtin University in Perth while we, while he was president. There are all these uh, personal connections that we we don't necessarily know about, but they need to be sustained. Rick, thank you very much again for coming to this, and it's been most interesting hearing your thoughts. Thank you. Thanks, Hilary. Thanks, Thanks so David. Much. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. In this episode, you had a conversation with David Angle, head of ASPE's Indonesia program, Hilary Mansour, former ASPE research intern, and Rick Smith, who served as ambassador to Indonesia from 2001 until 2002. We look forward to bringing you another episode soon. Thanks for listening.